Welcome, everybody, to episode 35 of the Next Day Takeaways here on Keyboard Kimura, presented by One Bone. UFC Jacksonville is in the books. It is time to look back on what took place yesterday morning and afternoon here on the West Coast, primarily afternoon on the East Coast and wherever else you may be listening to this from. We'll do it as we have over the last couple of events, over the last couple of weekends. We will run through the results top to bottom. And then we will break things down into different little talking points. There are a few that I want to get into. Main event, Ilya Tapuria defeats Josh Emmett. Unanimous decision, 50-44, 50-42, and 49-45 for a unanimous decision win. Moves to 14-0, 6-0 in the UFC, and cements himself as a legitimate contender in the featherweight division. Co-main event, Macy Barber gets a second-round stoppage win, 342 of round two, TKO over Amanda Hibas. Heavyweight fight on the main card between Austin Lane and Justin Taffa. A no contest, 29 seconds into the opening round. Fight was stopped due to an accidental eye poke. We will certainly touch on that one as we get going. Featherweights David Onama defeats Gabriel Santos by KO. Four minutes and 13 seconds into the second round. A beautiful uppercut and then a few coffin nails on the canvas. Main card opener, middleweight division, Brendan Allen defeats Bruno Silva by submission. Rear naked choke, 439 of round number one. Five straight wins for BA, three straight by rear naked choke. Ten in his career by rear naked choke. So developing a bit of a WWE style signature finisher. On the prelims, Neil Magny, split decision over Phil Rowe. 29-28 across the board, 2-1 for the veteran. Randy Brown defeats Wellington Terman by unanimous decision. 29-28 across the board. Lightweights, Mateusz Rombetsky defeats Loik Radzibov by TKO in the second round. 236 in, sort of a mercy stoppage more than a this guy is out and no longer defending himself stoppage. Rombetsky looked good. We will talk about him a little bit later on in the show. Strawweight division, Tabitha Ricci defeats Jillian Robertson. Unanimous decision, 29-28 twice, 30-27 once. Joshua Van. Comes in on short notice, defeats Jalgis Jumagulov by split decision. All three judges, 29-28, 2-1 for the newcomer. Similarly, Jose Chepi Marichal comes in and defeats Trevor Peak, 30-27 across the board in the lightweight division. Good showing for Chepe. Jack Jenkins defeats Jamal Emmers by split decision. 27-30 once, so for Emmers, a 30-27 scorecard. And then two 29-28s for Jenkins. Farjack gets his second win in the UFC. And then in the opener, Cedricus Dumas defeats Cody Brundage 30-27 twice, 29-28 once to get his first UFC win. There is a lot to unpack on this fight card, so we will start as we always do. In the main event, I spoke with Ilya Tapuria on Tuesday. He said, I'm going to go out and show everybody that this is for real, that the hype is real that I am the best featherweight in the division, that I deserve to be next in line to challenge for the featherweight title. He wanted, he wants, I should say, Alexander Volkanovsky to retain his title at UFC 290 because he wants to face the Australian. And with a performance like this, a dominant, clear, unquestioned statement win over Josh Emmett, I absolutely think you can book him into a championship opportunity later this year. There are a couple scenarios here that I will go through, but first I want to address the 50-48. So Chris Lee, not 50-48, I'm sorry, 50-42. Chris Lee is the judge that turned in that scorecard, 
a 10-8 in round three, and a 10-7 in round four. We don't often see 10-7s, as the great Jose Youngs pointed out when my guy Zach Packlib asked, when's the last time? I can't remember the last time. Oddly enough, Josh Emmett got one against Felipe Aranches. We saw one I remember that is that always sticks out to me is Chris Cyborg against Jan Finney. They're few and far between in this sport because usually when you get to the point of a 10-7, it's a fight that could be stopped. And certainly in that fourth round, if the referee had decided to jump in there and stop that fight, Mark Goddard decided to stop that fight, nobody would have objected. There should there would have been no objections. There would have been no anyone up in arms would have been crazy. Following that round, Josh Emmett goes back to his corner talks to his guys and they're trying to tell him you're in this fight. You're in this fight. You just got to come out. And I had tweeted out. There's no reason to send him back out there. You can certainly just be like, look, discretion is the better part of valor. We came, we tried, it's not working. There's no need for you to go and take more damage. That didn't happen. Josh Emmett goes out and he looks okay to start the fifth round. He's throwing a couple of things and clearly Ilya Tapuria in the fifth round for the first time in his UFC career is starting to fade a little bit. But it ultimately gets to where you expect it to go. Taporia hits a beautiful takedown, puts him on the canvas, grinds out the rest of the round, beating up Josh Emmett some more. A clear statement win. I don't necessarily disagree at all, object at all to the scorecards from any of these officials. They all look reasonable and understandable to me, which is always sort of my measuring stick. Can I see how they got there? Certainly can see a 10-8 in the third round for Tapuria. Totally understand the 10-7. I don't think I would have had it that way. I think I would have had 10-9s across the board with a 10-8 in that fourth round. But that's that's my scorecard. That's how we get there. I would have gotten the 50-44 card. All of that being said, as I said a minute ago, I think there are scenarios. I think there are ways that Ilya Tapuria fights for UFC gold towards the end of this year, if not early next year, depending on health. And divisional situations. I think there's two. The first one is Alexander Volkanovsky goes out, successfully defends his title, unifies the featherweight titles in his fight with Yair Rodriguez at UFC 290 in a couple of weeks in Las Vegas for International Fight Week. And then he just continues on, wants to continue fighting in the featherweight division and says, we've got this fresh contender. We've got this new guy that's ready to go. Bring him to me. Let's do this. Whether it's Sydney closer to the end of the year, which is certainly maybe a possibility, or we do December, or we do Madison Square Garden in November, whatever the case may be, there are opportunities there provided timing and health and how all of that shakes out. The other one that I think needs to be on the table and it, and truthfully would probably be a little more difficult to finesse is if Alexander Volkanovsky goes out, defeats Yair Rodriguez and says, I've done everything that I need to do at featherweight. I'm going up to lightweight for good now. I want Islam Mahachev. We got to run that back. I'm going up there. Whoever wants to fight for this belt can fight for this belt. In that situation, I can see Ilya Tapuria landing opposite Max Holloway. That is the one and only time, though, that I want to see Ilya Tapuria facing Max Holloway. My guy, Eric Nixick tweeted out afterwards. Love to see him fight Max Holloway now. I stopped myself from responding to him on Twitter because I didn't want to be calling him out on these Twitter streets. 
but I don't want to see Tapuria or anyone else have to go through the Max Holloway meat grinder. 4-1, Holloway is booked. He is facing the Korean zombie Chen Sung-jung later this year. So that's set already. No need to pull that apart. Let them fight. It makes a ton of sense in some regards. Not a lot of sense in others, but away we go. This is fine. Additionally, I just don't think we need to keep doing this. Where we keep rolling guys out there and say, Max Holloway is the test you have to pass. He just went out there. Elia Tapuria went out there and put it on a guy that fought for the, for the interim title in February. Whether we agree with Josh Emmett being in that fight or not, he was in that fight. He was one step away from fighting for the undisputed title. And so you shouldn't have to keep proving yourself time and again in these divisions by going up against the former champion. Additionally, and this is the other part of this to me, is we need to get away from Max Holloway being in this title conversation and in this title picture as long as Alexander Volkanovsky is sticking around this division. Because like it or not, agree with it or not, he's 0-3 against the sitting champion. And if we just keep running every new contender through him, there's the possibility that we run out of contenders. Like, I don't know how that fight would go. I haven't sat down and really parsed it. Thinking about it off the top of my head in the moment today, having just watched Tapuria, having watched Max Holloway against Arnold Allen, I think it's a competitive fight. I think it's an entertaining fight. I can see ways that each guy is successful. I give Holloway the edge because of the experience and conditioning and ability to push that ridiculous pace late into the fight. But I also think that Tapuria is the kind of young, dynamic, talented fighter that could give Max trouble, maybe hurt him, maybe even put him away if that damage and accumulated wear and tear from over the years starts to really show for Holloway. But that's a conversation for way down the road because I don't need these two crossing paths. Like to me, and and Tapuria said the only way he would take that fight is if it was in Spain. This goes back again to me to what we talked about and and the we is myself and Harry and Sean and Ian after the first London show last year when Arnold Allen goes out and beats Dan Hooker and says, well, I guess it's Calvin Cater. Nah, man, don't even put the possibility of anyone other than a championship fight out there for the UFC to consider. Tapuria told me on Tuesday, I'm going to that fight because I'm next. I want to see who I'm going to be facing. That should be the messaging throughout. Stick to that. Don't mention Max Holloway because the UFC seems to love the idea of running everybody through Max Holloway. The other challenging wrinkle to this in terms of Tapuria getting next, in addition to the potential Max Holloway meat grinder that always sort of shows up, is what happens if Yair Rodriguez defeats Alexander Volkanovsky. In that situation, is Volk going to stick around for the rematch to try to reclaim the belt? If he does, do we then have to get to a third where we're putting 12 to 18 months between Tapuria and a championship opportunity and therefore asking him to go through some of these additional competitors towards the top of the division? I don't know that it happens. I'm leaning at this stage before really sitting down and diving into it. Towards Volkanovsky, I think he is just the more complete 
dangerous overall fighter in terms of his ability to execute in there over the course of five rounds against Rodriguez. But it's not out of the realm of possibility, excuse me, for Yair Rodriguez to go out there and defeat Alexander Volkanovsky and become the undisputed featherweight champion and turn this thing on its head and create a whole new set of questions and possibilities for the division going forward. That to me is also why if you are Ilya Tapuria, you just stay laser focused on, I want the next championship opportunity. I don't care which one of them has the belt. I don't care if it's for a vacant title. I just went out here and put it on Josh Emmett, book me in a championship opportunity. That's all I want to hear about. If you're not calling with a championship fight at the end of the year, it's going to need to be a Brinks truck and a name that isn't Max Holloway, but is also somebody in that top five close to title contention, which basically means Brian Ortega. Because you take that fight if the situation presents itself where we get some sort of things are drawn out. Somebody gets in Volkanovsky gets injured. We need to do another interim title fight, whatever. Stay away from Max Holloway, focus on the championship opportunity. And if it's got to be something else, if you've got to fight one more time, stay away from the Hawaiian guy that used to rule the division. Cause we don't need him back in the mix. The coming event to me presented some important talking points. And I tweeted this out. Saturday during the event, Macy Barber to me is yet another reminder, yet another example that we need to allow young fighters to develop. We need to give them time to grow before we start putting all of these expectations and pressures on them and deciding their futures. So Macy Barber, and I didn't mean to use the word future there given that it's her nickname, but such is what happens. Macy Barber came into the UFC with a ton of hype. Her nickname was and still is the future, she had a countdown clock to how many mu- how many years and months and days and hours and everything she had until she would be older than John Jones was when he claimed the light heavyweight title. It's a good shtick. A lot of people have, have said they want to go out and beat that record. To date, no one has. Because it's a really ridiculous fact that John Jones won the light heavyweight title at 23 years, 242 days old by beating Mauricio Shogun Hua. It's preposterous, quite frankly, that somebody could be that good, that dynamic, that talented, that young into their career, and generally, frankly, into their life. Macy Barber didn't get there. She lost to Roxanne Montefari, blew out her knee in that fight, returned, lost to Alexa Grasso in a fight where she looked poor, a fight where she looked bad. She swung at air for the majority of that fight, and it felt at that time, to me, like, Man, maybe this is maybe this is somebody that's not going to get anywhere close to delivering on the upside and reaching that full potential. Since then, however, Macy Barber has won now five straight fights. She came into this fight on a four-fight winning streak. And if you want to do the whole, well, I didn't think she beat Miranda Maverick, I didn't think she beat Andrea Lee, fine. But those fights still gave us indications that this young athlete is getting better and figuring some stuff out and putting some things together. And what we saw on Saturday was the culmination of that. And I don't mean culmination in this is where it ends and she'll never be better than this because I do believe Macy Barber is going to continue to progress and continue to get better. But we've seen over these five fights now, this athlete that has come into her own, that has learned to 
fight to her strengths, to know who she is as a competitor, which is a difficult thing to ask of somebody at 19, 20, 21, when she came into the UFC. And we do this all the time with these athletes. People turn up and they look good and they have a bunch of hype and they have a bunch of promise and we want to shoot them to the moon right away and strap that rocket ship on their back and send them flying. And it just never makes sense. It almost never works out. All these athletes that we love, that we revere right now, that have historic careers and have become some of the best fighters in the UFC. I'm thinking of guys like Max Holloway, Dustin Poirier, to a lesser extent, Justin Gaethje, but like so many of these different fighters and these different champions only got there in their late 20s or early 30s because they had to go through those trials and tribulations. They had to go through those moments where they questioned themselves and their ability and their training and figured some stuff out. Macy Barber was bouncing around from camp to camp at the start of her career, getting different looks, working with different people, trying to see what fit, trying to see who could connect with her, who she could connect with in terms of developing her skill set and figuring out the way that she's going to fight. She's absolutely found a home at Team Alpha Male. It is a great camp for her, in addition to being a long-tenured camp that has produced athletes that have fought for and won championship titles. It's also a group that has a lot of similar-sized bodies and experience in those weight classes, in that range where she fights, with figuring out and developing athletes to their fullest. We've seen it throughout the years. It was a factory for a number of years through the WEC into the UFC with Joseph Benavides and Chad Mendez, TJ Dillashaw, on to Cody Garbrandt, Andre Feely to a lesser extent, didn't hit that high level, but still come through and had a very long, successful overall career in the UFC into some of the younger next generation talent like Song Yudong, like some of the women that have come through that gym, including now Macy Barber. She looked outstanding on Saturday against Amanda Hebos. This was a terrific performance. There were spots in the fight where you could see her understanding the little things that you need to do. I have preached throughout her return from those two losses that she needs to be a grimy, bullying fighter. And the elbows inside that smashed up Amanda Hebos's face made me smile sitting in my den watching these fights, recapping these fights, because that's who she needs to be. She's not someone that should be out at range, throwing a whole ton of jabs, looking to just pick and pick and pop and, and pitter-patter with people. She has good power, but she is at her best and most effective and most dangerous in close, in spots where she can be physical, where she can use that strength and athleticism and physicality to muscle women around the cage and then mash them with elbows and short punches and good shots that do damage. This is what happened in this fight. She hurt Amanda Hebos multiple times. The head kick, the elbows, some big shots once she was rocked. And then understanding, I've got her here. Let me just keep on hammering away. It was even in the first round when Hebos dove on that knee bar attempt. And Macy Barber was like, I'm cool. I'm not in jeopardy. Let me just beat the hell out of her. Because that's going to allow me to escape this even quicker. This was exactly what I wanted to see. I didn't think it was going to go this way. I picked this one wrong. This was one that I I broke down and I read incorrectly. 
The physicality of Macy Barber ruled the day. It was tremendous to see, and it should prompt everyone that was on the bandwagon at the start and bailed when she lost two fights to veteran competitors, including one who now sits atop the throne in the flyweight division, to just pump the brakes and take a couple of years and allow these athletes a couple of years. I know it's hard. Everybody wants everything now, and it's just the now, now, now. Nobody gets there in two years. Nobody gets there in three years. It takes four, five, six, seven years for some of these athletes, especially the ones that start as young as Macy Barber did, to figure themselves out, to get themselves into these positions where they know who they are, they know how to use their weapons, how to play to their strengths. She looked phenomenal on Saturday, and I cannot wait to see what comes next for her. Not going to spend too much time on the heavyweight fight between Austin Lane and Justin Taffa because it only went 30 seconds. The one thing I will say is that the handling of this needs to be cleaner. This felt like they made a mess of things when they really didn't need to. From Dan Mergliata asking Justin Taffa right away, hey, are you okay? When he's hunched over, holding his eye 14 milliseconds after Austin Lane's knuckle went all the way into his eyeball was just a dumb question. And like, look, we all, we've all asked dumb questions in the heat of the moment. And I'm sure internally big Dan was like, well, that's stupid. Of course he's not okay. But from the moment, Justin Taffa sort of moved his hand away and revealed that his eye was bleeding. And we saw the replays that this was a very deep, very gruesome looking eye poke. Just stop the fight. This dude ain't continuing. I don't care what he tells you. If he says, I want to keep going, you see the eye is bleeding. You see it's swelling up more and more with each passing second. Don't sit there and tell him that he can take the full five and I want to just give him time and let's see if it clears. Nah, man. Dude just got a full digit in his eye hole. Stop the fight. Wave it off. We don't need to do this. There needs to be better practices in place to just make these things happen quickly. Let's just get them done and get out of here because this felt like we were on the brink of something stupid happening. It felt like we were really close to Justin Taffa getting the okay to keep going out there and that would have been absolutely ridiculous. I'm glad that it was stopped. I feel bad for Taffa making the trip from Australia over to the States to get 29 seconds of octagon time and probably not get his win bonus. That's another topic for another podcast down the road, but we got to do better handling these situations. David Onama looked good, showed good takedown, sorry, good submission defense in the opening round against Gabriel Santos, and then came out and hit him with an uppercut that separated him from his consciousness for a very brief moment. Santos recovered well, and was back in it and sitting up and was there and present and everything for the decision and the end of the fight and all like that. But a beautiful uppercut from David Onama, who just remains a guy to keep an eye on. He was somebody that after his debut against Mason Jones, where he gave a good accounting for himself up in weight, he was on my radar of somebody to keep an eye on in that dropping back down and good promise overall, sort of like we saw with Christian Rodriguez earlier this year in beating Raul Rosas Jr. 
I think Onama is somebody that I really want to see more of. I'm not in on him. I'm not out on him. I like the tools. I like the pairing with Mark Montoya, who I think very highly of, but I still want to see more. There are moments where he looks great. There are moments where he looks like he's going to get blown out. There were moments in that first round where it looked like Santos was either going to submit him or knock him out. And so if he can tighten some of those things up with more time at Factory X, he can become a player in this division. He has big power. He's got a great frame. As he learns to use all of these things, this is going to be a theme over the course of this over the course of this podcast and every probably every day on this platform because it's something I harp on about all the time. If he learns how to use them, if he learns how to hone those skills, he could be dangerous. I think that sentiment applies to Brendan Allen as well. Just we're at the more similar point to Macy Barber than we are David Onama because BA came out and looked great against Bruno Silva, even though there were dicey moments. I called this a trap fight during the week. I said, is this where Brendan Allen slips on the banana peel again? Cause he's lost in this spot twice before. And there were moments in this fight where it looked like Bruno Silva was going to hand Brendan Allen another loss in a big spot to his credit. BA was able to steady himself and instead of wilting and throwing himself into the fire in bad spots, he set himself came back hard, came back strong, got the finish, looked great. Fifth straight victory. As I said, off the top, I'm really curious. And I've already reached out to Brennan to have a conversation. Hopefully this week, maybe even a conversation with Brendan Allen in the coming weeks. I really want to know what has changed for him during the course of this run because he has looked outstanding. I said going into the fight, and I've I've talked about it in the past, this is a kid at 27 years old that has a wealth of talent, that has a wealth of experience against really good competition throughout, both in his LFA days and since getting to the UFC. It has always been, up until this run, between his ears that has let him down, I think. And he's clearly fixed it. So I want to see how far he can take it. He is very much a top 10 guy to me in the middleweight division. He said a bunch of good stuff afterwards in his post-fight interview with Daniel Cormier. I thought he could have tightened it up. Give me two or three points max, not seven like he gave me. But he is the only young guy that's on the rise in this division. And it'll be really interesting to see how far up the ladder they move him after a first round stoppage win on Saturday. It's the next day takeaways on keyboard Kimura talking about UFC Jacksonville. I'm E. Spencer Kite. We move to the prelims. Neil Magny defeats Phil Rowe. And this to me was just the takeaway here is, man, Neil Magny knows how to win fights. He knows how to just do all the little things at the right times to keep you a little bit on the back heel and a little bit on the back foot and convince judges that he's won that frame. I thought Neil Magny won the fight. I scored at 29-28 for Neil Magny. I think all three rounds were pretty close. And it's those little things that he does, like always throwing little shots in the clinch, like throwing longer combinations where he lands two, three, four shots. There's not a lot of power on them. There's not much power on them at all. But he's just constantly touching you. And so if I'm landing four or five shots 
to your one, your one has to be so impactful to overtake my four. It's entirely possible. We've seen it plenty of times over. The running example is Marlon Chito Vera and Rob Font, where Rob Font outstruck him in terms of significant strikes, in terms of total strikes by a mile. And you could see that just in watching the fight. You didn't need the analytics, but everything Cheeto landed was just so, so much sharper, excuse me, so much sharper, so much more punishing that he won the fight going away, quite frankly. Magny's never going to be that guy that he's coming out and banging you with power shots, but he's always touching you. There's always little things. There's the knees to the clinch. He had some good tie work, tie clinch work in this fight. And a little bit of it is just Phil Rowe doesn't have the savvy and the experience that Neil Magny does. This was Magny's 30th fight in the UFC. That kind of time, that length of tenure with all the rounds he's accumulated, just give you an understanding of these are the spots where I need to go and I need to get this back. You develop this awareness of what's happening in those five minutes that, okay, this first two minutes, I'm probably behind. I need to go a little more. I need to land one of my blitzy combinations. I need to get into a clinch situation here where I neutralize him and chip away, chip away, chip away with knees and elbows and little short punches to build myself back to even so that in the final minute of the round, when everything feels pretty close, I can edge him out. And Neil Magny does that time and again. This was the kind of performance that Phil Rowe should grow from because there's clearly some things to work on from this. But this was just vintage Neil Magny. And I am always going to ride for guys like Neil Magny doing Neil Magny things. A couple other quick points as we work through the prelims here. Mateusz Rombetsky looked quite good against Loic Radjabov. Beat up the lead leg. Punished him the entire way through. As I noted on about Saturday's action, it was weird to me that... Dominic Cruz initially sort of was like, I don't know about that stoppage to which John Anik quickly jumped in and was like, well, I think it was more that we saw Radzibov couldn't stand up. And so the referee decided to jump in and save it. I've said this a few times over the last few months, Dominic Cruz at the outset of this was a tremendous analyst. I loved having Dom on broadcasts, on calls. I think he has regressed a lot over the last couple of years to where it's tough listening to him at times because there's either things that he's missing or he's just, it feels like he's just frustrated. And if that's the case, it's not a good look. It's just not a good spot to have him on the broadcasts in this space where he's frustrated and unclear on things and just kind of like, it's not having an agenda, but it's having a, a bent to him. I hope it, goes away. I hope it gets remedied because when he is on and when he is at his best, he can be outstanding. And I hope we get back there. Tabitha Ricci looked fine. She looked good. The takeaway for me in that fight is that all these years in Jillian Robertson is who she is and continues to be a one-dimensional fighter. If she cannot take you down and work from top position, she is going to lose the fight. Tabitha Ricci didn't look great in this fight. She was fine. Her hands are continuing to improve a little bit. She didn't really work from any takedowns or do any work. 
from top position because she understands the danger that Robertson presents on the canvas. But this was one of your Jillian Robertson and your, her team. You need to go back and really like, even if this is take a year away from fighting to build on these skills, cause she's still only 28. Like you need to get in there and have better striking to back up this really terrific top game and submission game as a grappler. She doesn't have any of that. And you would think, you would hope this many fights into her UFC career, this many years into her UFC career, some of that would have been bolted on. It has not yet. And it's frustrating to see as somebody that, you know, for many, many fights, she was somebody in the fighters I can't quit. I think I've quit Jillian Robertson. I think I think this is me breaking up with Jillian Robertson. Joshua Van gets a shout out. I tweeted it out that I owe him an apology and that he has my attention. I didn't think a 21-year-old with limited experience against limited competition would come in on short notice and look like this. He looked outstanding. The boxing is crisp. The boxing is tight. If he really has only started wrestling in the last six months, I am now... 100% on board with giving this kid five years. As I said with Macy Barber, we need to give people time. We need to allow them to grow, see what they develop, see where they get to, see how they get to where they're going. The fundamentals and the raw materials he has in the boxing realm impress me. I love to see it. So 21 years old, 1-0 in the UFC. I'm on board. Here's your five-year window with me, Josh Van. I'm in. Let's see what we can do. We'll run this back in 2028. And yes, I will still be here doing this podcast five years from now. Okay, so this fight between Chepe Mariscal and Trevor Peak. I know I'm the outlier in this. I know I am probably in the minority about this, but I need to say it. And I've said it before and I will say it again. There is a difference to me between an entertaining fight and a great fight. This was entertaining because it was sloppy, wild, chaotic, crazy shit. As predicted, as expected, Trevor Peak was involved. Dude is a wild man. He fights, as I said, going in like a dude that is asking you to meet him out back at the Walmart because you said something about his girl and he doesn't like it. This wasn't a great fight. This to me, like... John Anik, God bless him. I love the man. He knows that. You know that. But he said there's a new fight of the year contender or one of the better fights of 2023, and I have to disagree. Couldn't disagree any harder. This was a slop fest that was fun to watch. This wasn't a great fight. To me, there were better fights on this card. Macy Barber and Amanda Hebos was a better fight. Ilya Tapuria and Josh Emmett, even for the first round, was a better fight. Like, we need to reset the way we calibrate these things, the way we talk about these things. Because for me, if this is your definition of a great fight, I then understand why I'm an outlier over here rocking a sub stack with 200 subscribers. I love each and every single one of you. And a bunch of people that tell me I need to stop whining about all of these things and complaining and complaining about people complaining. This illustrates to me, if this is your version of a good fight and a fight of the year contender, we're coming up on July half year awards lists are going to be coming out 
And if this shows up on your list, you and me got a real difference of opinion. Because this was fun trash. This, to me, was the MMA equivalent of reality TV. This wasn't prestige drama. This wasn't HBO Sunday night quality television. This was, you know what? I'm going to watch that stupid movie that is pretty dumb that I love and I'm just going to watch it again. This is Keeping Up with the Kardashians. This is dating shows on Netflix that I watch with my wife because I want to spend time with my wife. Yeah, I've watched Love is Blind. Yeah, I've watched Perfect Match. That's what this was. This was not The Wire. This was not The Sopranos. This was not Succession. And if you think it was, you and I have a difference of opinion that I would love to sit down with you and talk about at some point. Goodwin for Jack Jenkins. Jamal Emmers is tougher than people understand. He is now two and three in the UFC. It's a split decision, so could have been three and two. Could have gotten the nod. Have to watch it back. I haven't as of yet. Been trying to spend most of this Sunday just being away from MMA for the day. And so I will get back and just kind of buzz through it a little bit more just to see if I agree with the scorecards in real time. I scored the fight for Jack Jenkins, but acknowledge that it is really close. It's a good win for the Australian who's now 2-0 moving forward in this featherweight division. He talked about Nate the Train as a next matchup. Sure, let's do it. There's no reason to, to slow play Jack Jenkins. 30 years old, bunch of fights into his career. Jamal Emers is a good win and a good progression towards that Nate the Train level, so I would certainly be interested in seeing that. First fight of the night, it's an ugly fight. It's a bad fight. It's a boring fight. Not a boring fight. It's just kind of a fight. What I do want to touch on, one, loved Mark Montoya's cornering throughout this fight with Cody Brundage, but most importantly, I would like to know how Cody Brundage ends up in that fight. Now, I understand that he agrees to fight, and he says, yeah, I'm going. But at some point, to me, seeing him in there, even in those first few moments where he's jumping guillotine, doesn't get it, and then spends the rest of the round on his back... That leads me to believe that this is a guy that doesn't actually want to be in here. That is just kind of in here to get in here and thinks he can get it done real quickly. And if I'm anybody in that circle, I need to know that's where he's at going into this and keep him from being in there. His wife, the former Amanda Bobby Cooper, now Amanda Brundage, is pregnant. They are due to have their second child sometime soon. That's certainly a thing that weighs on you. That keeps you from, maybe keeps you from being in the gym. He didn't have a fight on the books. He lost to Rodolfo Vieira back in April. So this is a relatively quick turnaround on short notice. To me, this is one of those instances where even if the UFC reaches out and says, hey, we got this fight, are you interested? And you think Cedricus Dumas is a guy you can go out there and maul. You got to make a better assessment and a better read of where you're at and what you've been doing rather than race out there, especially given that he's on a two-fight slide, especially that he's been stopped in his last two fights. You can't afford to go out there and have a stinker. Like, this is the tough part for Cody Brundage right now, is you just went out and had a bad fight on short notice, making decision mistakes and IQ mistakes and game plan attack mistakes that show you either really underestimated this dude or came in just looking to get in here, cash this little bit of a paycheck, and peace out. 
And somebody along the way has to help this guy make better decisions than that. Mark Montoya tried to fire him up in the corner, tried to get him going. But at that point, and look, I don't know. I've never been in there. I'm not a fighter. I'm not a corner. But I would think, looking the way Cody Brundage looked, it's going to be really difficult to get that guy to snap out of that funk and come out here and be successful. And if that's where he's at, walking out there, somebody before he got in that cage, before he accepted that fight earlier in the week or late last week, should have intervened and kept it from happening. One last thing I am curious about, I will ask Brendan Allen about if I do get the chance to talk to him. I will ask some of the coaches and corners from these fights about as I get the opportunity to speak with them is whether the very different fight time impacted performance. It felt to me, especially with some of these athletes early in the day, Cody Brundage, Jillian Robertson, it really showed with. I wonder if for each of those athletes fighting at 1130, and I believe it would have been 130 or so respectively for Brundage and Robertson, is just such a departure from what your fight day routine is normally. Everything gets accelerated forward. So if you're used to getting up at eight o'clock, having breakfast, having a few hours where you can get a little shakeout in, where you can spend a little time focusing, meditating, getting to the arena, getting to the venue, going through all of your routine. If your Brundage did all of that get sped up to where you just feel off the whole time, because both he and Robertson looked in their corners like they just weren't dialed in yet. It's like the switch hadn't been flipped. And I wonder if the start time had something to do with it. I've heard athletes in the past talk about some of these different cards where they're fighting later than they're used to or at different times than they're used to. I know when they go over to Australia, it's generally on a Sunday morning and that's been difficult. So I do wonder if that played an impact here in Jacksonville. All in all, to me, this was a fun card, an entertaining card. It kind of built as we got going. Only one finish on the prelim, so it felt like a bit of a grind. It felt like a bit of a slog, but we got to the main card. We went two finishes. We had the unfortunate heavyweight fight end the way that it did. We had the Macy Barber performance. We then had Ilya Tapuria close out the show, looking tremendous, an absolute dominant effort against Josh Emmett. As I said earlier, get that man a championship opportunity next. Keep him away from Max Holloway. I want to see Ilya Tapuria against the very best this division has to offer. And right now, that is Alexander Volkanovsky. That is the fight I hope to see next. I hope that's how things play out, both for us as fans, for Ilya Tapuria wanting that fight, having done everything that he has to do on his end to merit that opportunity. I hope it comes together. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of the show. As always, please like, subscribe, rate, review, Sign up for the Substack. You could sign up for free for five bucks a month for 50 bucks for the year. Check out the boys at One Bone, onebonebrand.com. Promo code ESK20 at checkout for 20% off your order. I will be back with the Keyboard Kimura podcast on Monday and then into UFC Vegas 76 Strickland versus Magomedov starting on Wednesday. Gonna have a guest for a conversation with this week. Can't keep it under wraps. Wait for you to see it when it rolls out. I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a fun one. Taping it on Monday. 
roll it out on Tuesday. Check that out on all the platforms over on YouTube, up here on the Substack, over on Instagram. It will all be linked. There will be reels. There will be clips. Looking forward to it. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your Sunday. I hope you had a tremendous weekend. I hope everything goes well for you this week. Love you. I appreciate you. I will talk to you soon. Take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. And we're out.